Good morning, church. Um, before I dive into the word today, um, I just want to say a huge thank you uh, from Jackie and I. When Jackie and I got here, we were newlyweds, just nine months married, and now we have our first child, and it would be wrong of me to get up here and not say thank you uh, for the amount of clothes, diapers, formula, the meals. You guys have taken such good care of us, and we are incredibly, incredibly grateful. And uh, in this service, I I do want to say thank you um, to Leah. Leah, I hadn't met her before this happened, um, but Leah actually wound up being a nurse at Continuing Care Nursery uh, at Bay State. And when Riley got transferred there, uh, Leah asked to be Riley's nurse for the duration of her stay there, and it just gave us such peace of mind. And so just want to say thank you uh, both to Leah and to you guys as a church, because really we are so grateful for how much you have loved us and helped us to feel like family here. Now, with that said, Pastor Stephen was confident enough to ask me to cover two whole chapters in 35 minutes. So we're looking at chapters 8 and 9 from 1 Corinthians this morning, and now that we're here, I can't help but think that we probably are going to discover just how misplaced that confidence, no, um, <laughs> but when we look at chapter 8, uh, Paul interacts with the argument presented by the Corinthians in basically three sections, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6, and verses 7 through 13. Now, I got to apologize, church. There's no stories about an opossum or any other wildlife this morning. Uh, we're just going to dive in because we got to take a look at two chapters that seem to make two differing points, but we're going to see how they actually flow together. And so again, those three sections, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and 7 through 13. Now, in each section, Paul juxtaposes one thing against the other. Now, is juxtapose my favorite English word? Yes. But why am I using that word? It's because the word contrast simply isn't good enough to explain what Paul is doing here. Juxtapose, um, yes, it means contrast, but what it means is it's putting two things up against each other because it has a very specific reason for doing so. So it's not just taking two random things and saying compare and contrast. It's saying, I'm giving you these two things to compare because I want you to understand why I'm comparing them. So you are going to hear the word juxtaposition a few more times, uh, but I wanted to make sure that we understood that it was a lot more than just contrast. There is a specific purpose as to why these two things are being drawn up against each other. And so again, it's one thing against another for the sake of giving us proper perspective of what Paul is talking about. So in the first section of verses 1 through 3, there's actually two comparisons that Paul makes. First, knowledge versus love, and then he takes knowledge and he compares it to being known by God. In verse 1, where he gives us knowledge versus love along with the difference between the two. Knowledge alone puffs up, but love builds up, right? Who here has ever heard the term know-it-all used in a positive connotation? <laughs> right? Why? Uh, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. In verse 3, Paul adds another layer to this perspective of love and knowledge by saying, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
It's a nice little subtle comparison here that Paul does. He's saying, take your knowledge and put it up against everything God knows. Who do you think wins in that battle? Right? Like, um, you know, growing up, I was obsessed with airplanes to the point that my dad, four, five, six years old, he would take me to the airport to hang out, and I would literally just pin myself against the glass and watch planes take off and land for hours, right? Um, the, my, my first job that I wished to be when I grew up was um, garbage man, so that doesn't really fit the illustration. But my second one was astronaut, right? And so astronaut, and then I became obsessed with fighter jets, right? So Top Gun was a favorite movie of mine, and if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, awesome, right? And so um, went to go see it, and then uh, I texted a friend of mine who is a crew chief in the Air Force, right? Now, as I'm watching Top Gun Maverick with Jackie, there were a couple times that I was able to lean over and like explain something. Not mansplain, explain, okay, right? So I explained some things to Jackie and it was cool, right? Oh, I've read about this. I used to be obsessed with this as a kid. I knew it, right? But the week after I watched the movie, I grabbed a cup of coffee with a friend of mine who's a crew chief in the Air Force who has hands-on active working knowledge of F-15s and other fighters in general. And so we hung out, we talked for a bit, and our last topic of conversation was the movie. Could you imagine if I had approached the conversation with him like, hey, let me tell you everything I know, because I know so much about fighter jets because I watched two movies. Right? Right? Would have been silly, right? This guy has hands-on, active knowledge of F-15s and other fighter jets. And I got to tell you, even in the five minutes that we talked about it, there were at least two or three times where my limited knowledge showed itself. Fortunately, he's very humble, so he didn't correct me. But I caught myself, and I was like, wow, yeah, really don't know all that much, right? So if you want advice on the Air Force, are you coming to me, or are you coming to the crew chief who works on F-15s? Right? And so there's this little interesting thing that Paul does. Hey, uh, you've got some knowledge, but if, you, if, um, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Do you catch the subtle thing that Paul's doing there, right? And so um, who would know more, God or you? And so it, it frames this conversation of not just knowledge alone, but knowledge and love. And so based on verses one and three alone, Paul is gently rebuking those who think they know enough. Come on, you've encountered this person, right? You can't tell them anything because they know everything. But I love that Paul didn't just leave it up to verses one and three. Like verses one and three were the gentle approach. But in verse two, Paul was like, listen, for the stubborn people who needed a little more direct, if you're stubborn, this verse is for you. You ready? Paul wrote it, don't get mad at me. Okay, here we go. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Right, what did Pastor Ken used to say? If you can't say amen, say ouch, right? <laughs> if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul puts things that way in verse two because he's, tr he's trying to deflate those who have puffed themselves up over their knowledge and it sets the tone for the love that will build up as he writes the rest of Corinthians, which of course, if you know 1 Corinthians, love finds its resounding apex in the famous 13th chapter of this book. 
And so that's verses one through three. Verses four to six, Paul does something very simple. He transitions to addressing a concept that the Corinthians are wrestling with. And the Corinthians, the Corinthians are struggling with eating food that has been offered to idols, right? Why are they struggling with this? This is from a commentary. It explains it like this. To refuse to enter idol temples or eat meat that may have been offered to idols meant that a believer would have to withdraw from much of public life. Why? Because it wasn't just about eating in the temple courtyards. Those temples would then sell the food, the meats that they had offered to these idols. They would give that to be sold by markets and such. So imagine having to be a believer and being like, oh, was this offered to an idol? Was this offered to an idol? Was this, you know, having to filter through, right? And so um, that's the, the struggle that they're having. And the Corinthian argument is very simple. These gods don't exist. The idols that this food has been offered to, they don't exist. There may be a bunch of them, they may be referred to as lords, but given that they don't exist, it's really not a big deal to eat something offered to something that doesn't exist. And so Paul takes this argument. Now, let me be clear. Paul's argument over this does not end in chapter 8. It ends in like chapter 10 and 11. So we're not going to dive deep into this argument because it continues two or three chapters later. So we're, we're kind of doing a flyover at 30,000 feet of chapter 8, okay? Um, and so again, these gods, they, they don't exist. And so Paul, he frames this knowledge of the Corinthians against the ultimate truth and reality that we as Christians hold to. What do we read in chapter 8? We read this, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what did Paul do? He took a very specific argument and he zoomed all the way out to the ultimate truth of Christianity, that we have one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul does not let the knowledge the, the Corinthians offered stand alone, but he frames it against something else so that it can be seen properly. In this case, he actually goes really deep here because he uses the title Lord to refer to Jesus, thereby equating Jesus with the Father, asserting Jesus's divinity. And so he frames this knowledge of eating food offered to idols against the foundational truth of Christianity, right? How many of you ever... Do you remember playing with a microscope in like middle school and stuff and it's all fuzzy, but then you get that fine tune and all of a sudden everything comes into focus, right? And so that's what the Corinthians had done with this argument. They were just like, we are gonna talk about this argument and this argument alone. And Paul goes, while in the frame of this context of just the argument, you may have a point, I have a bigger point to be made that requires us to zoom out. And that's why Paul talks about one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, both of them being equal. And that moves us into this last section of chapter 8, where we discover the key verse that underlies this heavy discussion as a segue into chapter 9. 
Paul, in this section of the argument, essentially affirms the Corinthians, yes, those gods don't exist, but not all possess this knowledge. Yes, you are right. These gods don't exist, but not all possess this knowledge. And in discussing the reality that not all might possess this knowledge, Paul shows us how our knowledge needs to be twofold. Not just an academic or a theological knowledge, but because of love, a knowledge of people as well. Paul brings up that there are now believers who used to truly believe that those gods existed and that for them, it's more difficult to understand how eating food offered to these idols is okay. Those gods may not have existed, yet because of these people's belief or former belief in those gods, their lives were led in a way of pleasing these gods that to eat anything offered to them is at the very least a conflict, if not a crisis. Have you followed me on that? If we combine our knowledge with a love for people, Paul lays out this plain and simple truth. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What is it that Paul has just said? Your knowledge is right. You could exercise your right and not be faulted, but if you love people and your right is a stumbling block to them, lay down your rights out of love so that your brother or sister does not stumble. Academic knowledge combined with a knowledge or a love of people. And if you've been a part of Bethany for the last two, three years, you've heard something said here a lot. It's one of our staff values, people over preferences every single time. Why? We want Jesus to be the only stumbling block at Bethany Assembly of God. That's it. The only stumbling block that should exist at any church is Jesus Christ. But here we have resolved to make that our thing for people over preferences. Meaning you might have a right, but you should be able to lay down that right if it means loving a brother or a sister better and not being a stumbling block for them. The Christians, mark, the Christian marked by love for people knows that their knowledge needs to be exercised through the lens of love. Or to put it another way, one commentary said this, no Christian is at liberty to assert his rights if it means doing harm to other people. No Christian is at liberty to assert his rights if it means doing harm to other people. And chapter 8 ends with Paul saying, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so maybe you've struggled to grasp what Paul is talking about here. The the easiest correlation I can come up with, um, listen, the subject I'm about to talk about, I know it affects many people's lives. So when I talk about it, I'm talking about it incredibly sensitively. So I hope you hear that from me. But Um, I had a friend who, um, she was dating this guy, and um, she was getting ready to introduce the guy to her father. And so, right, they're they're going out for dinner, and my my, my friend explains to her her date, 
hey, um, my dad is a recovering alcoholic. He's been sober for however many years at that point. Um, I would appreciate it if you didn't order alcohol when we got dinner with my dad, right? But what happened? That relationship quickly met its end. Why? They're out for dinner, and what did the date decide to do? He asserted his right. Oh, I'm old enough. Oh, I, I can drink this. And so ordered alcohol, even though he had been expressly asked not to, right? Like, if someone who's a recovering alcoholic reaches out to me and they want to have an appointment, where's the last place I'm going to set that appointment, right? I'm not going to ask them to meet me at a bar, right? Why? That would be incredibly messed up, right? Understanding this addiction used to have a power in their life that they are trying to break away from. Now, I... I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life. Do I know alcohol has power over other people's lives? Yes. Can I talk about alcohol in a way that shows that I don't know that power? Absolutely. Paul is saying the same thing to these Corinthians. He's saying, I know those gods don't exist to you. I know that their power doesn't exist in your life, but newsflash, there are some people who used to live in a way that they thought those gods existed, and because they thought those gods existed, they lived a certain way, and so it's tough for them. They're still disassociating themselves from that life. Therefore, lay down your right if it means your brother or your sister isn't going to stumble. Amen. Did you follow me on that? Are we clear now? And so from there, I want to move into uh, chapter 9. And in, in, in chapter 8, transitioning into chapter 9, Paul has laid the marker down. All of your knowledge should be filtered through a love for people that to truly show God's love means you would lay down your rights so as to not hurt another fellow believer. Now, I got to be honest with you. So chapter 8 was like a 30,000 foot flyover. I got to be honest with you. Chapter 9 is like 50,000 feet, okay? So we're zooming out just a little bit more because... Um, I love what Paul did here. It's almost like the person who wrote the Bible knew what they were doing, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> and so um, I want you first, I have a little challenge for you. I want you to go home and read these two chapters together tonight. Because obviously I didn't read them to open the message, right? When I first started preparing the message, I was like, I could probably kill like 20 minutes if I read it very slowly, right? No. Um, but I want you to go home and read chapters 8 and 9 together with the orientation that I'm giving you as we do these flyovers over these two chapters. But again, I love what Paul did here in this chapter because he adds a stunning level of interaction with what the Corinthians are arguing. Chapter 8 was a response that starts basically in agreement with them, adds a layer that they hadn't considered, and then ends by chapter, by chapter 9. Are you ready for this? Asking 19 questions. Oh, you think you know something? <laughs> not one question, not five questions. If you read chapter 9, there are 19 questions for the Corinthians to struggle with. And not only 19 questions, they cover a wide range of subjects. One question asked the Corinthians to consider why the law said to not muzzle the ox while it was pressing the grain. 
So it's like, whoa, <laughs> okay, we had a very specific argument, and now I'm talking about oxen not being muzzled, right? Like, Paul, what are you doing here? But these 19 questions, they all flow from what chapter 8 ended with, a knowledge of rights combined with love, but now Paul makes it personal. Have you ever had that conversation? You're talking about something theoretical, abstract, it's not exactly correlated to you or the other person, but then all of a sudden, it gets personal, right? And what happens? Our first human instinct, <laughs> we like clam up, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm good with discussing this abstract. Now that you're making it about me, I've got problems, right? Like, let's not go any further, but that's what Paul does. Honestly, it almost feels awkward. Paul asks questions that highlights the right that he has. Oh yeah, Corinthians, here are all my rights. And yet he also illuminates how he hasn't exercised those rights. This almost feels like the person who tells you how humble they are. And it's like, you can't do that, right? You can't tell someone, yeah, I'm really proud of, right? It doesn't, it doesn't flow, right? It's incredibly awkward, and yet that's what Paul is doing here. He's not asking some theoretical uh, questions. He's asking the Corinthians, hey, look at my life. Look at the rights I have to exercise, and the fact that I'm not, what do you think that means? You know, there, there's sometimes in Scripture where you're like, I think Paul has an ego problem, Right? Like, I thank my God that I pray in tongues more than all of you combined. It's like, whoa, buddy, <laughs> that sounds a little prideful, right? In Philippians, when he talks about all the things that set him apart as a Jew, it's like, whoa, okay, Paul, like, we got it, right? But Paul has a point for doing this. And so I can't help but think of a courtroom setting here. It's like chapter 8 was the portion where you establish your account and you get interviewed by your own lawyer, right? And so what happens? Your lawyer, they ask you a bunch of questions. Why? So that you can set up your testimony well. But that's the nice part, right? That's the, the easy part of being interrogated in a courtroom setting. What happens after? The other side gets to drill you on what you claim usually with the intention of dismantling your side of things. Questions aimed at creating a juxtaposition that could either enhance or expose. And you know what that's called, right? It's called being cross-examined. And that's when I realized how brilliant what Paul did in chapter 9 really is. Because the truth is, the only way we can have a cross-church right, our series title. The only way we can have a cross church is if we have believers that aren't afraid to lead cross-examined lives. Not lives marked by ruthless interrogation, but by leading lives in light of the cross, cross-examined in an entirely different sense of the word. Because just how fundamental is the cross to Christianity? The center is the, uh, the cross is the center and the circumference of all we believe as Christians. And so we are to lead cross-examined lives. Paul is showing how he's leading a cross-examined life, a life marked by following the one who hung on a cross, who truly laid down not just his rights, but his life, all for love, so that people might have the opportunity to be restored to right relationship with God. 
Could you, be, could you imagine being asked to sacrifice your life so that someone could choose whether to use your sacrifice or not? I'm not doing that, <laughs> right? To give everyone an opportunity to choose whether to be restored to right relationship, and yet he did it. As I mentioned earlier during communion, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so Paul makes clear, just like he asserted the truth of God the Father and Jesus as Lord in chapter 8, that all of these questions, what they drive at, is found in verse 12. The second half of verse 12 says this, but... We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. No amens there. (laughs) We endure anything. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And so, like I said, Paul makes it kind of awkward because he talks about his rights that he could assert, but he doesn't assert, mostly playing along the lines of like, hey, I'm allowed to ask you for financial support for what I do, but I'm not going to ask you because God is my ultimate provider, not you, and it enables me to keep boasting in the gospel that the gospel is what my life is about, not your provision for me. And so he says that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. What is he saying? Yes, I have rights. Yes, I have rights. I can't lie. I'm kind of enjoying the fact that I get to give this message in the United States of America, right? Why? Because, man, what do we claim more than anything else? That's in it? I've got Freedom, I've got rights. These are my rights and my rights and we focus on me. And Paul is saying you have rights, but if they become a stumbling block to others, you're to lay down those rights. The gospel gives me reason to lay those rights down. The gospel, the cross-examined life that Paul leads is so compelling Are you ready for this? He says some of the most challenging words in the Bible that don't come from Jesus. I want you to hear me on this. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. That is someone who has put the cross above their rights. He's been able to lay his rights down because he knows ultimately at the end, all that matters is the cross and nothing else. And now, I I do want to bring one piece of clarification to these words, because some people read these words and go, does this mean Paul was inauthentic? Does this mean like, I became a Gentile to the Gentiles. Was Paul just a chameleon, right? I look good and sound good according to the people that I'm with. That's not what it means. Paul was just saying, for the sake of the gospel, I'm able to adapt to whoever my crowd is because I want everyone to have a chance to hear the gospel. By all means, I might save some. Why? Every single person on this earth is worth saving because of the cross. And there is no one that our preferences or our rights should make us say, eh, I'm going to hold on to my rights rather than bring gospel to this person. 
Right? You look at the history of missionaries throughout Christianity. There are plenty of missionaries who answered the call knowing full well, I might only be able to step foot on that land before my life is taken from me. But for the sake of the gospel, it's worth it. Why? By all means, for all people. Not just some people. Not just, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, right, but there's stuff has been said about Bethany like, oh, if you want to be a member at Bethany, you need to pay $10,000 a year, right? Not true, right? But could you imagine being a church that's like, oh, yeah, you know, um, can you let us see your salary before you uh, become a member here, right? Uh, nope, your, your salary is not at the level that we want. Um, hopefully you can find another church for you, right? I got to tell you, God's not going to be in that church, Right? All means for all people, right? There's nothing that we should be able to use to say, uh, yeah, no, this person's not good enough. This person's not worth it, right? Oh, should I take this next step? Let's take this next step. It's Pride Month, right? We're not supposed to be like, oh, yeah, no, those people are lost, man. Those people, oh, I'm, I'm gonna pray for them, right? But when you have the opportunity to invite them to church or something, or maybe to be a church that's just welcoming and love them and accepts them and knows God is the one that does the work, not us, right? And so there's nothing that we should be able to use to say, yeah, uh, those people aren't worth our time. No, those people, I'm gonna hold on to my rights rather than let the cross bring those people to Christ, Paul was absolutely brilliant in what he did in chapter 9. He, he charges, he, he challenges the Corinthians, are you leading a cross-examined life? Have you let the cross examine your life to determine what it is that needs to die that Christ may be glorified more? You know, it's funny, we're, we're a Pentecostal church, right? We just had Pentecost Sunday last Sunday, right? And so we got Greg Hubbard in, and we knew that it was, oh, it's Pentecost Sunday. And so we, we come in all charged up, and sometimes that really frustrates me because I'm like, we're Pentecostal. We shouldn't be looking at one Sunday as the Sunday for Pentecost, right? It should be something that we are continually marked by. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, the random prayer meeting in the chapel on Friday night with five people. We should be marked by Pentecost at all times. And so the question then becomes, are we truly letting the cross examine everything in our lives? Right? We talk about resurrection power. Oh, I've got resurrection power. Newsflash. If you put nothing to death, nothing's being resurrected. You can't have resurrection without death. That's what the cross says. The cross says, come to me and die that I might give you new life. And that when you come to the cross and die, you realize your preferences and your rights, they pale in comparison to the weight and the call of the gospel, that we should be challenged by Paul, that Paul's words are not just for pastors, evangelists, or preachers, it is for every single believer that believes that Christ lived, died, and rose again. I became all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Our preferences and our rights, they all die at the foot of the cross for the sake of of the gospel. So here we are, we're talking about being a cross church, right? That the cross determines our priorities. And so today I ask us, 
as a group of believers to examine ourselves in light of the cross and determine where are we clinging to rights or preferences that in reality should be laid down at the foot of the cross so that in clinging to the cross, we might help others cling to it as well. Listen, for all that your rights might give you in this lifetime, you will receive no greater reward than laying your rights down for the sake of the gospel to have the reward that the gospel brings to those who believe. Because you see, church, believers, our reward is not this lifetime. Our reward is not this lifetime. Our reward is the other side. That's why death to us shouldn't be something we fear. Death is simply a doorway to glory on the other side. A glory where tears will be wiped away. There will be no more death, no more sadness, no more sinning. There will just be joyous relationship with God the Father all because of the cross. We can't have resurrection power if there's no putting to death first. And when we look at chapters 8 and 9, we see this hyper-focused argument. I want to eat meat that's been offered to idols because I know those idols don't exist. And Paul says, you're kind of right. But Paul then zooms out and he goes, here's the ultimate knowledge that we always operate out of. That there is one God, one Father, one Lord in Jesus Christ in whom we have life. That, in light of the cross, in leading a cross-examined life, I bring myself to the point of understanding these preferences and these rights. The ultimate way I can exercise them is to lay them down that someone else might know Jesus. That someone else might know Jesus. That's what we're called to, church. We are called to see the cross. We are called to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus. We've been called to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires so that we might have new life in the Spirit. And that new life in the Spirit, trust me, it makes it easier to lay down because now you have the love of God compelling you to others to say, I want you to experience the same deliverance and the same power that saved me at the cross because Newsflash Church, if the cross was good enough to save you, it's good enough to save them. And so if you were able to find mercy, grace, and rescue at the cross, there is no one that the cross cannot save. And so I want to end, Dave, if you could come up. I just want to end with a simple time of reflection. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me, we're just going to close, just a little music, and I'm going to pray. But I just want to ask you, have you been leading a cross examined life, continually juxtaposing the things you hold on to against the reality of the cross and determining, is this worth holding on to with my strength or do I let the cross-examined life help me to lay that down, that not only I might be filled with resurrection power, but that I could become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. We sang that song today, worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all.
I love it, easy to sing it, easy to sing along to. But does your life show that he's worthy of it all? Is it something we just sing and, and then we just go home and get back into life and we forget about when we realize that he truly is worthy of it all? When we realize Jesus had the right to call legions down from heaven and get himself off the cross, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I want you to know your rights and your preferences, you will never find more life in them than laying them down at the cross so that others might find Jesus as well. And so the altars will be open if you decide to respond. I'm not giving any sort of formal response. I'm just gonna pray. But I wanna ask you, maybe there is something in your life that you're like, you know what? This is something that I know needs to be crucified, that I know needs to be laid at the foot of the cross. Maybe you've been claiming resurrection power and you've put nothing to death. Maybe today is that Sunday for you. Maybe today is that day that you go, okay, I've heard about this Jesus thing. I've been through the routine, but today, today is the day that I will lay down my life spiritually so that I can be filled with a new and everlasting life in Jesus. If that's you, I want you to know his hope, his grace, his mercy is available to you. And that spirit that fills you helps you lead a cross-examined life from here. And so I'm just gonna pray, but I want you to join in with me. Whatever maybe the Holy Spirit has illuminated or pointed out as I've been speaking that, hey, this is something that needs some cross-examination in your life, that you would leave from here willing to actually let the cross examine that and determine, is this something that needs to die at the cross so that he can give me new life? And that's a message, not just if you don't know Jesus, that's a message for every believer. Because as we draw closer and closer to Jesus, he shows us more and more, hey, this isn't so much like me. This, this we've got to work on and this has to go. Church, the only way we are going to be a cross church is if we are individuals who lead cross-examined lives. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you exist. Thank you that you are the one God, the Father, that you are Lord Jesus Christ, from whom and to whom are all things. We thank you for that knowledge. But now, Lord, for this word that asks us to compare specific things versus overarching truths. I pray, Lord, for every believer here, for every person here, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would help illuminate, would help juxtapose things of death versus things of life, that there might be new life, Lord God, that there would be resurrection power because a cross-examined life laid down their rights and their preferences, that they might know Jesus and that they might become all things to all people, that by all means, some might be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And now be with us as we go. It's in your name we pray and we believe. And the church said...